and my parents never felt safe letting me out there. So I spent a lot of my time on our balcony reading or my favorite pastime would be playing concert. <laughs> um, but yeah, also toward the end of our tenure there, uh, there became kind of, it's a big word calling it a Hebrew school, but it was kind of like a Jewish club kind of thing that was kind of underground in this old decrepit house and they gave English lessons. Um, they gave Hebrew and English lessons for families who were planning to immigrate. So like on Sundays I would go there and I, like I had some friendships there. Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Hello listeners, and thanks for joining us on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we're happy to amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants living in the United States and around the world. Today, we have another amazing story for you. We have Marina from Belarus. Welcome, Marina. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Can you go ahead and, and tell us a bit about yourself? And we'd love to hear more about you. Sure. Um, well, like you said, I, I was born in the former Soviet Union, and I came here from what today is Belarus. In 1994, I was 11, and within a few months of arrival, I turned 12. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, uh, I've, uh, my first year in America was a very formative one, um, between it being a very formative age and having such a big change in my life. So I've always kind of been sitting on this story of mine uh, for a while, and finally I've... Um, I've had enough courage, enough guts to, to write it. Um, being an immigrant child, uh, obviously I had um, not uncommonly a lot of expectations and pressures put on me. And uh, so my actual educational background is uh, I have a history degree and I have a, a law degree from New York Law School. Uh, but writing has always been a passion. I've always wanted to tell stories. Um, and I've, I've written in the past, I've written fiction, and there's always been a character in my books that would be either an immigrant or a child of immigrants, but it's never really been um, the main thing about them. However, when I started writing this, I kind of, I think I rediscovered my voice, uh, mm -hmm. writing this fictionalized memoir about that first year. Uh, and I'm very, very proud to put it out there. And um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about it. Awesome. Awesome. I'm looking forward to learning more. And I'm happy to hear that you came across our podcast and reached out and, and wanted to share your story. So we're happy to present our platform. Hold space is basically what I told a few people. I'm holding the space for us because it, I have found that at times I've felt, I can only speak for myself, like when I have certain just heart-to-heart -heart conversations and I say, 
this is how I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing a certain group. Mm -hmm. Help me understand. Like, you know, you're a part of this group. Like, where am I going wrong? Sometimes you can feel like people are gaslighting you. Like, you know, I don't know anyone who would behave yeah. this way. And so and I've had people text me to say, thanks, Simone, for speaking up for us, because that's been my experience as a daughter of immigrants. This is what how it was like for me in school. This is how I was treated. And so I'm holding the space right for us to be able to tell our stories and to be authentic in it and and not to feel like we need to sugarcoat it to please somebody else just to tell the truth. That's that's you know, yeah, that's what yeah. we're doing here. So you've shared a bit about your heritage and your background. And I wonder then, is there an arrival story behind what brought you and your family to the U.S.? Yeah, we are uh, Jewish Soviet refugees. Um, so in the former Soviet Union, um, we were not considered Russian or Belarusian or Ukrainian. We were Jews um, in birth certificates and teachers rosters and passports. You would be going down a list and... They would be Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Marina, Raiden, Jew. So that's who we were. So we never, we were never a part of the whole. We were basically second-class citizens. Um, so while religion itself was outlawed in Soviet Union, we were we were still Jews, even though the religious part of it was was robbed generations ago. We, everyone made sure you knew who you were. <laughs> Right. Uh, you didn't need to practice religion for everybody to know who you were. Um, and the United States has been fighting for a long time um, to help Jews from Soviet Union be allowed to come out because Soviet Union would not let anybody leave. So there have been trickles in, in the 70s, um, in the 80s, and uh, in the 90s. So we came in the early 90s wave um, as refugees from the former Soviet Union. Um, and we're very, very grateful to this day. Um, we that it, it's been and it's been a dream um, of my parents, particularly of my father's. His family has been coming over in trickles, like whenever Soviet Union would open a window, like another family would leave and then another family would leave. and. Finally, with reunification, uh, family reunification, we were able to come here as refugees. Hey, wow. As someone who is outside, who was raised Christian, practicing Christian, and I still try to understand where, and I guess maybe this is where you just said you guys were second-class citizen. Like, how is it that the religious angle becomes your is it basically your nationality but it's quite confusing yeah. for somebody on the outside because I'm like so how could somebody be called can somebody be a Jew and Ukrainian and get the Ukrainian nationality and the religious part of it becomes another part of their identity but you never got I, I don't understand how do they differentiate so that's the fascinating part because all religion across the board was outlawed in the Soviet Union so even if um, like today, predominantly um, like Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, it's Christian, but it's for the most part, it's Russian Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox church. But even people who were Christian, they couldn't really go to church. 
uh, so all religion was basically prohibited but Jews we were a nationality that's what it was called um, so other ethnic groups would have like you know Uzbeki, uh, Moldovan and we would be Jews no matter what republic we lived in and they were 15 in the Soviet Union we were always Jews and that would always count against you uh, whether it's in college applications or job promotions uh, which was the case for my father or school experiences which is how it was for me because the fascinating part is as soon as Soviet Union opened the doors and let Jews leave a lot left and we were not in the early part of the wave we were on the latter part and by the time we were about to leave I was the only Jew in school literally <laughs> in a town that had a pretty decent Jewish population when we moved there by that time I was the only Jew and Jews were the only ones who were kind of able to leave at that point while the country was crumbling uh, so there was a lot on top of the systemic discrimination that was just built into the the system of Soviet Union there was also a lot of this resentment um, and even potentially jealousy that well at least you get to leave and I don't um, so it's it's very trippy because yeah it has nothing to do with religion it just has to do with our DNA and our parents that's all it's to do with actual Judaism as as a religion Wow, because I hear that quite a bit. Like people, it seems to like it's like a tag that follows you guys wherever you go. Like any country yeah. you're in, I'm like, why aren't they like the national of that country? Yeah. It's like Jews, like the first thing. How are they able to track you guys like this? Is it physical features? Is it blood? Is Are they literally doing D DNA tests, blood tests? How is it that you cannot just uh, be absorbed into... Because it sounds like you guys were not practicing Judaism because oh, no, it was all lied. So how did they know that your family specifically, you know? So it just basically went on documents. So your birth certificates, you know, when a child would be born, they would be registered. You would take the parents' documents. So it would be father Jew, mother Jew. And the same thing going up the family tree, you would just look, track the documents. Wow. So you couldn't have a Jew that married someone else, like another ethnic group. And then what would the child then be called? It's like, it's, I mean, like. It's actually the opposite of the Jewish law. Um, yes. The Jewish law, it would go by the mother's side. Yes. But I believe in Soviet Union, it would be by the father's side. So if the father was Russian, Belarusian, etc., I think you'd be able to register your child as that. Okay. Right. And so it just was the last kept... name as well, because, you know, so like my last name was fairly ambiguous, but it's pretty rare. So that made me stand out on that angle. But a lot of people have more ethnic sounding last names. So, yes, if you would marry, um, if a Jewish woman would marry someone who's not Jewish, they would definitely take that last name just to like try to shed that and fit in easier. Right. Okay. No, and I can imagine. My goodness. Because um, I'm like, wow, that's quite a meticulous system to maintain. <laughs> it 
especially and and you're right like the the disconnect between but these people aren't even like practicing any religion <laughs> but they're still uh jews Right. No, I, I often wondered in my own thinking, trying to make sense of when I hear somebody constantly, it's just you're a Jew, you're a Jew. And I'm like, but there, because I lived in Mexico for two years, there's a lot of Jews living in Mexico City. Oh, And wow. I, that's all I would hear. You, it was just like, you know, Jewish, 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 but they're Mexican because after They're a few Mexican, generations, yeah. they're born in Mexico. So I'm Yeah. like, but that thing just kept following them. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, why is the religion or the religious aspect of it? Like just trumps everything else. And it just follows you wherever you go. It just. Yeah, you you can't even if you convert, you you still, like even if you convert outside of Judaism and you want to adapt a different religion, you will still be a Jew. You cannot shake that. That's another story for another day, right? I know I can, it's yeah, uh, I would have it, to it do goes a lot very of research. deep in history Yes, <laughs> right. I, I, I and see and that. this is something i go into um in my book when i was in first grade um and again i was the only jew not just in my class but pretty much in the entire building by that point this was 1989 and i borrowed a quarter for ice cream from my my first grade teacher's daughter who i believe was in second or third grade And I forgot to return it the next day. And the next thing I remember is I was on the floor and she was kicking me in the stomach for being a dirty kike. Um, A dirty. kike. Oh, that's the derogatory term I'm that they serious. use. No, I'm serious. When I say I'm new to Yeah. some some of these things, I am. Is Yeah. it K I K E or something? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? So is that what they they say in New York? Is that to New York, Uh, or yeah, is it throughout the well, U.S.? in... Uh, in English, you don't hear it as much. In Russian, the equivalent, which is an interesting linguistic lesson, in Russian, what they would say is Zhid or Zhidovka, depending on whether it's male or female. And the interesting thing is that in Polish, those words just mean Jew. It's not derogatory in any way. But the way it was adapted into Russian, it became derogatory. So um, that was my teacher's daughter. um for not for forgetting to return um a quarter A quarter. as a seven-year-old i was beaten up by eight or nine-year-old for being a dirty kike Oh my goodness. And you and remember how do that. you go to teacher with that right like <laughs> it's her daughter um so yeah that's like hard to to shake My goodness. Oh, wow. 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 I'm, I'm hearing a lot of stories to a few Haitians who went to school in New York and how brutal it was for them not being able to speak English. They were like abused, brutalized, really like beaten up and not being able to express or explain what happened going home with faces bloody and, and all. yeah, just, I, I have I'm to just, say the, the interesting disconnect for me coming over here, you know, from a land where I was Jew, 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 I came here and I became Russian. And it's so weird. And for the first few years, I would actually try to explain and be like, I speak Russian, but I'm not Russian. And they're like, what do you mean? I'd be like, I'm Jewish. And they're like, are you from Israel? I'm like, no. <laughs> and it was a very interesting thing to experience that coming over here finally i was allowed to wear my star of david because i was not allowed to do that back there for safety reasons uh and finally here i am with my star of david and they calling me russian and it's like that is so weird <laughs>
Yes. No, because we're not used to, it doesn't make sense for me coming from another part of the world, which is why I've always tried to make sense. I'm like, why is this always Jew, Jew, Jewish, Jewish? But they don't, I don't hear the nationality because you have a yeah. lot of Jews over across the world and they'll tell you I was born and raised or a few generations here. And, um, but it's still, yes, that's a, that's another yeah, I conversation. Only, I only became Russian in America. <laughs> Wow, wow, wow. So I'm curious to know what is the what is it like back then? Do you remember in Belarus like what was foods that you ate? It sounds like you guys are marginalized basically as a group. But what was it like for you? Do you remember those days growing up? Yeah. So basically by the time so I was born in 82, but by the time I entered school, which it was 89, the Soviet Union started to crumble. And by 91, it split into 15 brand new countries. Um, and you had brand new money that meant nothing. Like prices would be like in millions because the inflation would be so crazy. And things started becoming scarce. They always were, but I didn't, I wasn't as aware of it as, as a little kid. So I, I only started, you know, developing real memories around that age. Um, and it was all whatever you can get. Like when we came to America, my dad still walked around. He was ahead of his time. He had a reusable tote, <laughs> which at the time back in, in Soviet Union, you would walk around with it all the time because who knows what you're going to stumble on. All mm -hmm. of a sudden, there can be a truck that has a truck of something and you join the line and you buy it because you're not going to have that opportunity again. So he would continue walking with his tote. And people would laugh at him here saying, well, they give you bags for whatever. You don't need to do that. And now I'm laughing. My dad passed a few years ago. Like he didn't know he was ahead of his time. Totes made a return. <laughs> oh, definitely. Because I think in the D.C. area, when I was living there, they started charging an extra, I think, five cent tax or something. And now you, you, you're welcome to bring your bags, your little totes to the yeah. grocery store to help with the recycling and so forth. And I think Atlanta did that too, I yeah, want to say. Yeah, now you can't even get plastic bags. But at the, in 94, it was like also like a mental shift for him because you like, if my dad would be late coming home from work back in Belarus and my mom would ask like, we worry, he, he would bring whatever he bought and he's like, well, they were selling it. So here we go <laughs> because we're not going to have the opportunity. I remember um, a lot of just the way the country was structured, a lot of what you got was favors. So if you knew somebody who worked in a certain factory and you did them a favor, they could help you get something. So my dad was very handy and he had, you know, he would fix TVs after work or things like that. And we had three giant bags in the bedroom. One was rice. One was flour, and I think the other one was buckwheat. I can't remember what the third one was, but it was a bag probably about my height, and it would last us years, but that's what you got because it wasn't in stores. You couldn't just go and get rice in the store. If you stumbled upon it, great, but it's not, it wasn't a reliable thing when you go to ShopRite and you shop for whatever you need. But here we had these ready bags because my dad did a favor for someone, and that's kind of how you lived. You like you swam where you could. And that's probably how he got paid, right? Kind of like a barter system. A, a lot would... of it, yeah. 
a lot of it would be like um uh like even medications and like in early 90s a lot of medicines would be unavailable so you'd go to the hospital and doctor would give you a list of saying this is what you would need for this procedure find it somewhere and you would go and you try okay well i have this what can i trade for this it's like i think there was a fairy tale like that right when like somebody kept trading and trading Yes. that was basically life My goodness. Wow. So were you guys allowed to go out and play? You you're being taught Russian in 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 school. I mean, yeah like, so you know, what was it like as a young child? I mean, were you free to play about, have friends, or were you kind of isolated being, you know, quote unquote Jew in Russia at the time? So in school, yes, Russian, um, at the time, all republics or former republics had Russian as the predominant language. And whatever the republic you lived in, like if you lived in Ukraine, you would also learn Ukrainian. If you lived in Belarus, you would also learn Belarusian. But that was a secondary thing. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have many friends um, for obvious reasons. And my parents also didn't. Uh, feel safe letting me play outside the way um, the way it was structured like most of the buildings they would form like a block thin like rectangle of cement because <laughs> they were all cement blocks and you'd have large courtyards with playground equipment and kids would come out and they would play there all day and my parents never felt safe letting me out there so I spent a lot of my time on our balcony reading or my favorite pastime would be playing concert <laughs> um but yeah also toward the end of our tenure there uh there became kind of it's a big word calling it a hebrew school but it was kind of like a jewish club kind of thing that was kind of underground in this old decrepit house and they gave english lessons um they gave hebrew and english lessons for families who were planning to immigrate so like on Sundays I would go there and I like I had some friendships there Right, right. Okay. Wow. As I hear you say that, I think of embracing my daughter and remembering when I was younger growing up in Jamaica and just, you know, all the kids, uh, our community was pretty uh, small in the rural area, by the, in the countryside, right? The kids would come to our land. We had a big plot of land in front of our home and everybody would just come and we all will play. And I mean, you were just kids, I don't have any of these memories, but I tell you, my husband and I have kept our daughter inside, sadly, because I we're trying in a way, I feel like I'm trying to protect her because some of the neighborhood kids are not the nicest and they only kind of play, stick to each other. They only play with each other. And she often sits here and she looks out at them playing and you can tell she just wants to go out and play. But after a year and uh, the last maybe two or three years and she's now five I think she's probably wondering like why is mommy keeping me inside or she will just stand outside and just watch the kids playing but yeah and we're living in the U.S. okay and this is not how I was raised it's not how my husband was raised but yet in pockets of the U.S. you you have parents who are making these types of, of decision because you know certain ethnic groups within the U.S. are not going to be as friendly to your children. Yeah, yeah that's So, true.
you know, and, and that's what you're expressing that was taking place in Russia yeah. in this, you know, supposedly open society and land of freedom. But, you know, yeah. we have so many different blendings and, and perspectives of people here. So we, you just have to, to just be aware. Yeah, do your best. You have to trust your judgment. And I, I, I'm just hoping and praying that we're making the right decision, you know, just from past and previous experiences on the playground and experiencing this group i just know uh, they're not friendly to people who look like me so yeah so why would you want to expose her to that exactly and so i'm protecting her so i'm just hoping yeah. i don't know what it's doing to her psyche and what she's thinking and how she's processing it but at some point i guess i will ask and have that conversation with her so but that just kind of triggered something as i heard mm -hmm. You expressed that. I was like, wow. So so what was, as we talked about your book earlier, what was your, was it like, you know, during that first year and adjusting and share with us about your book? It was, it was very trippy. I had these big dreams of American dream and America and skyscrapers and all these fabulous things. And in the first chapter I go into this, when we were picked up at the airport, by our old um, neighbors. And they kept saying that my grandma lives in a studio. And to me, the only context I had for the word studio was, you know, an artist loft, you know, canvases, high ceilings, big windows. So I'm like, whoa, grandma's really made it. You know, she came over three years ahead of us. And then we come to, you know, a very regular Brooklyn building and apparently studio is like a one room apartment. <laughs> Uh, so it was like a little rude awakening from the beginning and from a child's perspective, it's looking back is pretty funny. Um, I just, I really wanted to be American because I never fit mm -hmm. in where I came from. Um, and I just, I had this dream of this diversity where people look different and we all going to be friends and we all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and everything's going to be awesome. And then I started school and crap was really hard. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know any language. I mean, I took mm. one year of English back in Belarus, but I, I literally like came over knowing how to count and like just saying basic expressions. So I knew nothing. Um, they had um, English as a second language classes for us. But even the Russian speaking kids, they don't want to deal with you because you're fresh off the boat and they already rid themselves of some of the stigma and they don't want to pick up any of yours. Mm. So you very, very lonely and everyone keeps telling you, you're a kid, you don't need to worry about it. Give yourself a couple of months, you'll be fluent, you'll be fine. And weeks and months are passing and you're not fine. And um my my family also was undergoing some um you know growing pains because my sister stayed back which was a huge rift in the family obviously uh for my mom specifically it was very difficult to focus on anything in the new life and adaptation her mind and her heart were back with her with her wow. firstborn um so there was that aspect to it and you know i was always a good student and then i come here and i don't know what i'm doing i can't even math is a little different you know like the decimal point back the russian math you would use a, a comma not a period like little things like that where you would think math is universal that should be my easiest but it wasn't um 
it was a lot of crying. It was um, a lot of overwhelm, but also a lot of bonding for me and my father because every night after he would come home from work, he would sit down with me and we would take dictionaries and we would translate my homework word for word. And we would stay up for hours. I don't know how much that man slept that year. Um, it, it was a lot. And for the longest time, I would joke that if I could go back in time, I would just surgically remove that year from my life. And when I started writing this book and I started, you know, now I have perspective, I have, you know, time to look, to look back, to reflect. I'm a parent and it illuminated so much for me. Like it answered so many questions as to how I parent, why certain things trigger me, because I was able to reflect on that from this distance. And that's why I called it year one, because that is my origin story. <laughs> like that's my, that's my formative year. And that made me who I am today. Um, it taught me a lot about myself, about people, about strangers and friends, about my parents. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very interesting experience going through this. It took, I was sitting on this for a while. I would start and drop this because I was afraid you know, it's a little, it's revealing. It, it feels like a little bit like undressing. So I made it fictionalized. So I would mm -hmm. change names, identifying factors about um, people who are, who are living, uh, small things. But all the events, all the things are real. Um, so it's it's really been a blast. And I'm so excited to, to share it because I think it can help even immigrants for sure will find it relatable of any background. Uh, but also I think even though it's really written for adults, I think young adults and teenagers can read it too. Um, just because it's that age when there's so much going on inside you, you know, the hormones, the, the middle school environment, you know, I'm in, in an inner city school that is overcrowded. Um, there's so much sensory overload and so much overstimulation and all these this language it just goes over you you're just swimming like these mm -hmm. words blend into one long word you don't know where it starts or where it ends so i think it i think it would be helpful even like for teens or maybe first generation kids too i think it would help with perspective on things right do you have it there with you? Want to hold it up so we can um, get a copy of it? We haven't, uh, I haven't seen it as yet. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this was my proof copy. So it has the not for sale tag on it. Okay. Um, but this is, actually, all right. This was my first picture taken in America. This is maybe a week or two in. Um, and the artist who, who worked on the cover, Anna Abramson, who's just incredible artist, um, she took that and she she it's beautiful it's a lovely cover and to yeah. think that's actually you right yeah yeah that was uh, 11 year old me very bright eyed very very excited to be here and i, I just uh i i make fun of myself looking back like i was so in my head i had all these like fantasies like my my dad's gonna get a fantastic job right away and we're gonna live in a skyscraper and no you're gonna work really hard <laughs> before you even see that um i spent a lot of time with music um 
Michael Jackson was a huge part of my first year in America. Um, I honestly like don't think my mental health would be the same without my dangerous tape. I played it over and over and over again. Um, and I watched a lot of Family Matters. That was my favorite. Oh, I love TV. Family Matters. Yes. Uh, I even have Urkel his autograph. with Urkel, right? Yeah, and I have his autograph. I actually sent in as a seventh grader when I finally learned to write cohesive sentences. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote in, and remember, like, they had these books with, like, addresses where you would, like, send, like, I guess to agents or managers, uh, and someone brought it to school, and we all passed it around, and I'm like, I need to write to Steve Urkel, <laughs> and he Mm sent -hmm. Oh my in God. a post, sent back a postcard, I still have it, and, you know, it sounds silly, but truly, those people, without ever meeting me, kind of helped me survive, because they gave me something to look forward to my michael jackson tape was my price thing that when i would sit there for six hours in school not knowing what's happening or how i'm gonna do this homework assignment because i don't even know what it means i could look forward to just turning it on when i get home and just listening and that's all i had to worry about um so as silly as it as it may be you know my my fantasies and my my escape from reality, they, they helped. Right. Yeah. That's the word that came to mind. That was your escape, your peaceful escape. Right. My goodness. So then first year and as you got older, <laughs> how did you get to like wanting to be a lawyer? How did that develop? What was your parents experience? uh, well, it was kind of decided for me very early on that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, you know, as, as a, child of immigrants so well technically I'm, I'm an immigrant myself like so I guess I'm technically First generation, still a foreign yes. citizen um, the expectations and the pressure are high because like it or not even though we came from a very bad situation we still had something established and we dropped everything so you could have a better life so whether it was unspoken pressure or spoken pressure sometimes it was always there And since I was always good in school, a lawyer somehow became the thing everybody decided I was going to be. And, and I did, I became a lawyer. Um, I was, um, I went to college. I initially thought I was, I wanted to be a history teacher and everybody kept trying to dissuade me from that because, you know, you, you're an immigrant child, you know. <laughs> You gotta get a degree with a doctorate in it. Right, it's either lawyer, doctor, <laughs> or engineer. yeah, that's it. Those are your options. <laughs> and I wasn't that good at science. So, <laughs> um, so I was kind of dissuaded from that. And so I got a degree in history, and which I loved. Particularly, I love immigration history for obvious reasons. Um, and then I went to law school. Um, I. wasn't my favorite but I still managed to do well and pass the bar <laughs> um, but I, I don't currently practice um, and yeah I've always been gravitating to to creative writing to to that kind of realm and I'm, I'm here I am <laughs> talking to you about it <laughs> Wow, my parents wow. uh, for my parents the journey was uh, was different. For my mom, um, unfortunately, it was probably the hardest because of the rift in our family. 
she she was so depressed that first year because you have to remember this was 1994 you couldn't skype you couldn't zoom you had to keep changing telephone companies who, who would give you a slightly cheaper rate to call abroad yes our bills were piling up my father was the um the breadwinner and you know as below minimum wage that it was but still and we couldn't afford those bills and it was very hard my mom couldn't focus on learning the language or things like that so it kind of stunted her unfortunately um she she wound up working within the russian speaking community so that helped she never really needed the language uh for my father you know he had a few menial jobs when he when he got here he picked up whatever gigs he could um and then eventually um in 95 my year a year and a couple of months after we came here he got a job at an aerospace uh factory and that's the job he held until he died um and he wound up being the supervisor um of the assembly department there so he he really blossomed like he he had that like true you know american immigrant spirit like he truly accepted it and embraced it he worked hard and he he got the rewards you know he spoke the language he had respect um he i always say like this country was made for him i wish he i wish we came earlier um like my parents were 45 when we came Okay. um which is not old but had he come earlier i i think i think he would have accomplished more uh but he he loved this country he there was he couldn't wait to get out of the former soviet union um or living in a country that's constantly under threat Um, so America was always the goal. My mom has some family in Israel, so my mom was more
So she followed us two years after. So she is here now. So we came in 94. She came in 96, right before I, I entered high school. So she was 21. Uh, we're 10 years apart. And it was young love. And it's like, can't without my husband. So, <laughs> you know, we were all young and stupid. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was hard. I mean, nowadays it would probably be easier with all the you know, modern means of communication. But at the time it was either letters that took months or these like 10 minute phone calls that would call cost an arm and a leg. And my mom wanted to call once a week, which now as a parent, I totally get, but it was also really expensive and something we couldn't afford. So it was, it was rough. It was very Right. rough. Okay. And are you both the only uh, children? Yeah. It was Just just the the two two of you. us. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm happy she came over after two years and your mom could like rest and breathe a bit. Right. Me Because too. I can't even, I'm wondering like, did she married a Jewish man? Was he non-Jew? How was her experience after you all left? She's a young lady. Like, what was that <laughs> yeah. like? Yeah. Uh, he was, he was also Jewish. Um, and he was a businessman. Now, a lot of people after the fall or right at the fall of Soviet Union, a lot of people went into business. That was the new cool word business. Um, and he was one of the few successful ones. Unfortunately, what came with success is also the growing mafia and the government that would also blackmail you for money. So things were getting harder and harder over those two years that they stayed. Things were, they were getting dangerous. So at the time her husband left, they literally, he and his parents, they left under the cover of night. Literally, they didn't tell anybody, no neighbors, no friends. They didn't tell them what date they're leaving. They literally got in the car and drove to the airport. Um, but in 94, he didn't see it as, as a dire need because he, as opposed to, you know, my family was successful. Um, but it eventually wound up biting everybody in the, you know, behind Yes, eventually yes. they came. Right, yes. It, that's reminding me, I have some exposure to being traveling to Cuba during the Castro years. And well, he was getting older, and I think his brother was in power at the time. But I would hear people say that the, the, you know, the, the, when we would go to the markets and the grocery stores, you would have like a whole shelf of oil. or a whole shelf of one thing, but the store was never stocked. You know, there were empty shelves everywhere. And then the other thing was we go to the market and people, we would hear people say that it's like the leftovers, like the, the better products were either gone to the tourist industry or the government would have it, they would get it. Yeah. Or when the restaurants, the little holes in the wall that people would operate as restaurants, that they had to give the government a certain percentage of, of what they're earning. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, things are just kind of bleak Well, they would for just them. drum up charges for you too like that's super easy until you pay up and in terms of food yeah we were even when things started becoming a little more available they were not affordable so i've never had a banana until i came here i've never had pizza until i came here once my mom bought me a kiwi and we had no idea what to do with it <laughs> we were like do we peel it do we grate it like what do you do with this hairy little thing Yes. Um, and when we came here, we, we really did eat like horses, um, because the accessibility 
and it was affordable back then like it definitely things definitely got expensive over the years even relative to you know to inflation yes. i think things just did become more expensive because at the time i remember we could shop for a family of four because my grandmother was also with us for twenty dollars we could have a decent shopping for a week and now that's that's unfathomable Yeah. And school, I got for the first year, I got free lunch and I loved my free lunches. Chocolate milk, like, oh my God. And you, 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 you might appreciate this story. For years, I was looking for knishes because I remember liking knishes and the lunchroom. Mm And hmm I could just taste it. You know how like you can remember tastes? And I would chase this imaginary, imaginary knish and I just, I couldn't find it. I couldn't tap into it. And then my brother-in-law brought um, Jamaican patties for dinner. And I bite into it and I'm like, oh my God, that's it. That was not a knish, that was a patty. <laughs> and I, I just remembered it wrong. But I, when I bite into a patty, like the beef, Jamaican beef patty, boom, I'm right back in the cafeteria. That was like my happiest 20 minutes of my day would be in that cafeteria. Because Oh, wow. I would eat like, my pizza with chocolate milk or my patty or my cheeseburger. But then I would come home and the only thing my mom did besides cry that here was cook. She cooked all the time. So I would come home from school and I would be expected to eat again. And then I would eat again for dinner. <laughs> I don't know how it didn't rip at the seams uh, because we just, we could not believe our luck. Like you go to the store and they're like 10 different juices. Like you never had one in a store. Like. what like bread is pre-sliced like first of all there is bread <laughs> anytime you go there is bread you don't need to stand in line and wait for the truck to bring it over so that was such a highlight of that first year like to this Wow. day Yes. i like my white bread with like a thick layer of cream cheese because it like brings me right back <laughs> Oh my goodness, my goodness. I know exactly what you mean, like being introduced to the the fruits here that I know nothing about. Like the different apples would be new for the longest time. Some of them I had to get used to. I didn't quite like the taste or, and so forth. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. We thank our listeners around the world and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe and share with your friends, family and circle of influence.